0: Well, good morning, everybody. We're glad to see you, and online as well. A number of you probably stayed home because of the windstorm. We hope it's the breath of God coming through Seattle right now. We we hope for that. Um, this begins right. We we know this what would be known as the High Church weekend uh, this Sunday, because the next the next eight days envelop today Palm Sunday, then Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday. And uh, traditionally, it's the time of honoring. Uh, The events of Jesus' life and what he's done for us. And much of that has come into question in our current culture. And so the title of this morning plays off the idea of a title song that we sing here uh, at church. And it's called, Is He Worthy? We'll get to sing that next Sunday and it'll be fantastic. C.S. Lewis had a collection of essays and articles that were put together called God in the Dock. Some of you might remember that book. And uh, basically in Great Britain, what they would refer to as the dock is what we would refer to in America as the courtroom or court. And so it could be best understood as God in court or God in the courtroom uh, kind of idea. And the argument goes something like this. It used to be that we as humans were on trial and stood before an all-holy God in the court of heaven. Now it appears that with modern man, God is on trial and he stands before us in the court. And the evidence for this trial normally centers around the resurrection and whether it occurred or not. Uh, very capable minds have tackled this issue from both sides. Uh, from the Christian perspective, we have names like C.S. Lewis, John Wark, Montgomery, F.F. Bruce, John Stott, Bernard Ram, and others from a previous generation. Also Josh McDowell, J. Warner Wallace, Frank Turek, and others from this generation. But there's another question that comes up, that surfaces in this debate, and it's the one that's really on the table in our country right now, and that is the question of, is Jesus worthy? Is he worthy of my worship? Is he worthy of my praise? Is he worthy of my surrender and allegiance? Is he worthy to occupy the primary place in the thoughts and emotions of our hearts? And as we celebrate Palm Sunday, or what otherwise is known as the celebration of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, the question comes to the surface again. As we enter the year 2021, almost 2,000 years have passed since Jesus made that famous ride on a donkey into Jerusalem. And the question on the table again is, is he worthy? Let's go back and we'll reread the story again. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, we know I know that most of us know this story. I know that most of us have heard it many times. Um, Lord, one of the things you do fantastically well is you let us know what we're supposed to remember by reminding us of what we already know. And so Lord, we pray for that today that as this thought central sinks in and, and becomes central, Lord, we ask for you to be at work thinking about, just in our own hearts, do we hold you as worthy? And how are we hanging on to that? Lord, we seek you for that this morning. We ask for wisdom and insight as Esther prayed. We ask for you to be among us. We ask for your manifest presence, Lord. And we give that to you, a great hope in your name. Amen. All right. Starting then, um, if you're following along, we're in Mark chapter 11, and it reads like this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, this would be Jesus and the disciples. They had... Come from Galilee, they were coming up through Jericho and they were heading towards Jerusalem. To Bethphage in Bethany on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt tied at the door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, exactly what Jesus said they would say, what, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and sat on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from trees. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of... Now, this is really lame at this point, right? Because there's a whole crowd and how many knows how many are there and they're all shouting and dancing and throwing up and one person saying Hosanna sounds pretty lame, right? But imagine in your head a whole crowd of people uh, like at a fair or a festival or a concert doing this and you would kind of get the idea. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, it was already late and went out to Bethany with the twelve. This event, this event right here, set the expectations of the Jewish people and the nation on razor's edge. It had been brewing for about three years. And as Jesus moved closer, expectations were exponential in terms of what might happen. Could this be the coming of the kingdom of God? They fully expected Jesus to declare himself ruler. An ouster of the Romans was at hand. You can only imagine what that meant. They were going to be free. And then something very surprising happens Jesus' agenda immediately gets called into question. And he actually triggers a great deal of animosity. If you look, uh, the next story is Mark eleven fifteen 15 through 17. says this, And they came into Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The question would come to mind, what does that have to do with overthrowing the Romans? Slightly out of sync, wait, pause, didn't expect that. I, I shared the story with you last week how I got into trouble when I criticized God's actions because they didn't follow the path of my expectations. And... um and by the way don't go back and rehear that okay <laughs> But this is exactly what's going on here It did not follow the script They were expecting a quick and decisive military strike What are you doing turning on your own people In the temple no less How do I know this look at the next at the next uh, verses that follow It says the chief priests and the scribes heard it And they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Was he worthy? It says they feared him. But this wasn't the fear of honoring or worthiness. This was the fear of an opponent. This was the fear of a deadly opponent that they would have to take out. And he had to be taken out in their minds. Not because he was worthy, but precisely for the fact that he wasn't. What idiot, if he has the chance to free his people, doesn't do it and in fact does the exact opposite. He turns on his own people and goes after the temple of all things. Doesn't he realize that the promises of this place go back to Moses and Abraham? He is certainly not a leader in the tradition of King David. He has not brought us rest like Solomon. Not only is he not worthy as a leader, he's not worthy as a person. He has brought nothing but division and strife in our country for these last three years, and for that he must die. Let's fast forward 2,000 years. Has his reputation fared any better today? Do people today think Jesus is worthy? Does our world, our country, our culture hold him as worthy? The attacks are vicious. Christopher Hitchens' book has the title, God is Not Great, Why Religion Poisons Everything. Richard Dawkins' book title is The God Delusion. Bart Ehrman, Ehrman, by the way, was an evangelical believer, is now a great enemy of evangelicals his book is titled did jesus exist the new atheists have winsome and intelligent people all over youtube declaring why jesus isn't who you thought he was or even who he thought he was idols have filled our land are now being brazenly displayed across our country Uh, There's many, many illustrations, but I'll use this one. This happened here, the next slide, happened in 2015. This is in New York City. That's the Empire State Building. It was a uh, symposium in New York City on uh, taking care of wildlife and that kind of stuff. And to do that, uh, the goddess Kali, Indian, Das, you would know of that. The goddess Kali was there as the great protector of, of nature and wildlife but in truth Kali is not that she's an eight-armed god one carrying a sword and she's actually the goddess of death and destruction our drift in this country from the living god of the bible is progressing and accelerating at an alarming rate now none of this is new you can take that off <laughs> We'll go to the next one. None of this is new. What's new in America, though, as a culture, is the wholesale walking away from Jesus as a legitimate person of interest and worship. We have said to him as a culture one, you, you fail to impress us, number two, you fail to capture our attention i.e. you're boring. Number three, you're a bad return on time invested. There's so many other things I can do, so many things that are so much more fun, so many more things that give back a dividend. Uh, It's just not worth the time. Number four, your rules and ideas are not only outdated, but they are dangerous and bigoted. And number number five, we find you at fault, not us. We find you a bad ruler, a bad leader, and we are no longer going to submit to your leadership. This, though, is also nothing new. The book of Romans anticipated this over 1,900 years ago. Romans chapter 1 says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged. Exchange, there's the key word exchange. Um, have you ever gone to Costco or Kohl's or wherever and exchanged something, right? You bought it. Pam and I were just at Costco the other day. We bought one set of vitamins. We grabbed the wrong bottle. I had to go back in and get another, right? We exchange this for that. That's what it's talking about. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. And therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because, again, here's that word, they what? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul is telling us in Romans that we have made two bad exchanges as we sit here on the eve of Palm Sunday 2021. We exchanged the worship of God for the worship of ourselves, and we have exchanged the truth for a lie. Notice that this exchange is made because they would not give appropriate honor and they were ungrateful. Two telltale signs, right? If you're going to love God, you've got to honor him as God, and you have got to be grateful. And it says that when you lose those two, then its very next step is to go into idol worship. Jeremiah tells us that Israel made the same exact same mistake. Jeremiah says this, Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and utterly desolate declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And by the way, just so we're aware, Jesus is not caught by surprise by any of this either. Just read Matthew 24 and 25. He saw it coming from a long way off. As a matter of fact, If you go back to the original story about Jesus uh, in the temple, uh, they knew the answer way back then. But they weren't willing to admit to it. Right after the cleansing of the temple, they challenged Jesus. uh, Where does he get off acting like this? Who in the world do you think you are? Yes, Jackson. Jackson. And where did he get the authority to do stuff like this? Because he certainly hadn't come and asked us for permission. And Jesus responds as he so often did with a question of his own. Jesus said to him, I will ask you one question, answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Okay, he's looking him dead in the eye. Go ahead, tell me, what's the answer? And they discussed it. You can see the catch-22 they're in, that you can feel them squirm, right, in the text. They discussed it with one another saying, well, if we say from heaven, then why did you not believe him? But if we should say from man, well, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. Sounds like a kid with his hands caught in the cookie jar. Where did you get those cookies from? Mom, I do not know. <laughs> right? Was it because they didn't know the answer that they don't respond? Of course not. Of course. They knew John was sent from God. They just didn't want to acknowledge the logical progression that Jesus has set up that if John was from God then certainly he, Jesus, was as well. And that is where his authority came from. Jesus answers their double-speak appropriately. If you won't tell me, then I have no compelling need to tell you either. Look what he says to him. And Jesus said to him, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And just as Jesus didn't tolerate foolishness back in that day, he will not tolerate foolishness in our day either. Jesus will not be out-clevered. Psalm 18 says this, To the faithful you show yourself faithful. To the blameless you show yourself blameless. To the pure you show yourself pure. But to the devious you show yourself shrewd. The ESV would say, To the crooked you make yourself seem torturous. Many of you have that in your translation. In other words, if you're going to try and out-clever God, you're in for a torturous journey. It's going to be miserable. You're not going to like it. God will not be manipulated by the craftiness of man. And so what's going on here? Well, the the people had it right. Right? What did they shout? They shouted, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They had it right. But in less than a week, it all slipped out of their hands. They had it, but they didn't hold on to it hard enough. Why did it go sideways so quickly? I mean, one week is a pretty quick turnaround, right? Have you ever seen yourself do a flip like that? Yeah! Right? Sometimes it doesn't even take a week. How about an afternoon? <laughs> right? Why? Oh, yeah, right? It has to do with something we covered before. and just uh, We recently just talked about this in the Lose the Baggage series. And uh, why did they go sideways? What, What created such hostility? Well, it's really quite simple. The answer is this. Jesus didn't give them what they wanted. If he would have given them what they wanted, they might have complied. But he didn't. If you're not going to do something about the Romans, then you're not worthy as a leader. You know, all this tells us is that four-year-olds aren't the only ones who throw temper tantrums. Okay. Leaders can throw temper tantrums as well, as by evidence of our current political climate. And yet Jesus was, in fact, doing something about a much bigger problem than the Romans. He was solving the real problem, the problem that separates us from an all-holy God. Being under the yoke of Romans is one thing. Being under the yoke of sin is quite another. There was no way out unless he made a way out for us. And so Jesus was about to step in and fix a problem that we could not fix ourselves. And we will go over that on Good Friday. We encourage you to join us either uh, online or in person here. So the disagreement, though, is not over uh, whether there is a problem or not. The disagreement is over who has the most accurate definition of what the real problem is. And again, we see that issue perking in our culture today as to what is the real problem. We don't agree with God. We're going we're to tell you what we think it really is, and we're going to tell you where we think it really lands. Jesus now is on assignment. He's on mission with the task designated to him by his Father. And that is true for us today as well. As a culture, we have weighed in on the question of who has the most accurate uh, definition of the problem, and we have answered back to him, we do. And if you come alongside and change the things we want changed, then we might acknowledge you. But they weren't right 2,000 years ago, and we are not right today. Our agenda is not more important than his. The first time Jesus came humbly riding on a donkey. The second time he comes victoriously riding on a white horse. Northview Church family, we need to hold on to our confession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father at all costs. It's not popular today. You're not going to get a lot of pats on the back for doing that. We need to do that even when it doesn't look like he's winning, especially when it looks like he's not winning. See, that's part of the problem. It didn't look like he was winning. And so it all tipped and went sideways. Uh, I was reading uh, this week. uh, I'm again reading through the Bible. I'm in Psalms now. And uh, I was reading Psalm 10. And Psalm 10 is about the wicked man. And uh, if you read it, it just lists out the traits of, of a wicked person. And basically, the wicked man says, in his heart, there is no God. I am not under accountability for anything. It says he puffs at his enemies. And it says, in his heart, he will not be moved. And it goes on with a whole list of arguments like this. Uh, you can check it out for yourself. at Psalm 10. But there's one little line in this Psalm. It's, it's in verse 5. And it just jumped out at me and caught my attention uh, as something really profound And I I want to share it with you. It says this. It says God's judgment. When the wicked man is talking like this, Scripture says, yeah, but you know what? God's judgments are on high, and they are out of his sight. In other words, the wicked man is totally oblivious to what God's doing. The wicked man does not realize that there is an all-holy God. The wicked man does not realize that there are things being set in motion that will uh, totally undo his agenda he's thinking i cannot be moved there's nothing more powerful than me but the bible's saying god's judgments are on high and being made in heaven and they're going to totally have an impact on him and what i was what caught me then is that if it's true that god is making judgments on high and the wicked can't really see what are happening then it's also true that god is making judgments on high and the righteous can't really see that they're happening either The point is, God is at work. You have to have the eyes of faith to be able to see what God is doing or it doesn't make any sense. Again, we must hang on to our faith at all costs. It does not look like Jesus is winning today any more than he did 2,000 years ago. Matter of fact, some ways it seems worse. He seems out-technologied. He seems uh, so old school. He seems so antiquated. Riding on a donkey. Are you kidding me? We don't even have donkeys in our culture anymore. Okay? I have a, something to say right there, but I won't say it. I'd be kind. <laughs> I'm getting better in my old age. I really am. Okay? But he's making plans just like he did 2,000 years ago. Although it didn't look like he knew what he was doing, he totally knew what he was doing. Although it looked like his agenda was off, his agenda was totally on. Although it looked like he didn't have a clue what he was actually doing, the truth, he was doing something that was so unbelievable, the universe and the planet has never gotten over it. He was making a way for people to come to the Father in spite of their sin because they had no access point. There was no way to get there. There was no way to cross that divide. And he was going to offer himself. He's making plans just like he did 2,000 years ago. Just as the stage was set when he rode into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, so the stage is set for him to come riding back today. We sang about it this morning. I had chills. That song matched what the message was going to do. I went, wow, that's cool. This time on a white horse. This time not on a donkey. This time as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Church, let's keep our lamps filled and keep your wicks trimmed. Keep your eyes open. He's at work. Let's watch. Let's treat him as worthy. Let's pray. Father, we seek you this morning as we uh, come we know that this can sound like the cry of wolf at the door. It's been done many times before, and people say, yeah, 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 we've heard that. But Father, we have to be much closer to, we the, we might, I'm sorry, Lord, we must be much closer right now than we were to 2,000 years ago when you rode into Jerusalem. Only you know the timing, but we seek you to have eyes of faith, to keep watching, to keep holding on, to keep steady. Lord, help us get out of this. You have to do what I want you to do or I don't follow your thing. Help us do what you want us to do. Help us tie into your agenda. Lord, we pray that you would give us not only eyes of faith, but hands that grip hard to your agenda, that grip hard to your life and your promises. May we hold fast to what you've proclaimed to us, even in this treacherous period of time. Lord, we seek you for that kind of girding, uh, Lord, that would help us stand true uh, in the midst of all the things that we see going on. We ask for this in your name. Amen.